1: Welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was Tomorrow and My White Bicycle. And that's because Steve Howe has gone back to the tapes of Tomorrow's fantastic debut album and updated and reimagined that fantastic LP. And we'll be speaking with Steve today about his time in Tomorrow as well as the latest Yes material with their new album, Mirror to the Sky. So let's hear my chat with Steve. Hello, Steve. Hello. We last spoke in 2019 around the release of the uh, New Frontier album, the Steve Howe trio.
2: Oh, yeah. Okay, thanks. Yeah, good.
1: This time it'd be great to cover two aspects, uh, things that kind of bookend your music. Uh, Firstly, the new version of the Tomorrow album, and, and latterly, it'd be great to catch up on Yes.
2: Sure, we can do that.
1: Excellent. So... I've been listening to the new version of the Tomorrow album and it's badged as being reimagined. Can you tell us about what's different with this new version?
2: Yeah, sure. Of course. Yeah. Well, I mean, much like Giles um, Martin did with Revolver, it was a process that I imagined could work. I got Keith and Twink to agree to the idea. Basically, the album that we made in 1967 we came out in 1968 unfortunately mm. which was which was also a silly thing about it it wasn't really perceived as a, as a psychedelic record and yet you know I knew that that's what the group was really heading into so well I mean you know it's a kind of a process in other words um, the first thing we did was we requested the original mono mixes because they were the least available things of tomorrow because most of it was in this stereo format which was uh, very unsatisfying and uh th- it was kind of timple, you know there was a lot of factors in it that were that I- in the audio sense were 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 missing you know and, and uh, anyway it, it, it actually <laughs> i thought it'd be quite easy to describe so basically like it says in the sleeve i kind of um reimagined it so in other words I t- i took the tracks into the technology and and did minimal things to it i mean some of it is virtually the same but some of it isn't and the things that aren't uh particularly with with revolution were that 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 song was uh was <laughs> it was a bit of a muddle what was going on in it you know the different tempos and things like this and there were gaps and all sorts of things so basically this reimagining was really like looking at the music and saying well what would be desirable to do this to bring it into line with My White Bicycle and and things like that, you know, which were obviously you know purely uh, psychedelic. Yeah. So basically, um, things were adjusted more than you know it wasn't remixed really so much as things were adjusted and and we were able to do a tremendous amount now with a mono mono mix. You can you can adjust the EQs on individual instruments. You can, you know, adjust the balances if they're a bit kind of crude, and lots of them were. So at times, you know, the harmony vocals were too loud. Uh, sometimes something was too loud, you know, and and the general chaotic feeling that that I corrected. So and also we by taking three tracks off the album, Mary Somebody's Dress Shop, and these other kind of songs which weren't really treated seriously by us at all. They they, they weren't developed at all. So anyway, we took those three tracks off, and but there was room for other sort of hidden gems, you know, like the album opens with the alternative version of Real Life Permanent Dream, which is really just a live version done in the studio. And that's how we, more or less, how we played it on stage. And and I started the album with that, the very purpose that we titled it Permanent Dream, and also that we, uh, I, I wanted to show the energy in the band. And then we go into the, further songs which which are all you know like have a little bit of treatment so basically all I'm doing is is stylizing things as much as I can developing getting things in tune you know in pitch some of the tracks were running at the wrong pitch and and that affects my ears a lot because you know it doesn't sound right until it's in tune so we intuned things which corrected tempos which and then as I said we treated you know occasionally we brought down a guitar or brought up the drums or you know basically we re reposition those instruments to be uh more pleasing and we were thorough on uh, doing this to every track wherever it needed it you know and uh you know it was a lot of fun to do this to to make the mono mix really a convincing uh, medium for for tomorrow and my white bicycle superb production you've got Backwards
1: guitar there, you've got policeman's whistle. In terms of Mark Wirtz's production, how far have you moved away from that? Or is it more a case of the balance of how it
2: came out? Yeah, I mean, we haven't lost anything he did. All we've done is is to our ears, we've we've made it more listenable now. Partly it was partly the the stereo mixes that were readily available were uh, you know, the old style where the drums, the vocals were on one yeah. side and the drums are on the other side. And if you monoed that, it sounded something like the mono <laughs> mix that we've got. But there again, you know, people aren't going to do that. So the stereo mixes were checked in, in, in mono to make sure they're all right. But in fact, they've not been available. So yeah, my white bicycle is one of the ones that's least treated, although, of course, nobody's really heard the mono for a while. And also we we put a slight bit of uh phasing on, on a couple of bits in it just, just to kind of simulate. A little from the from the stereos, but yeah, I mean it was a a rough time for stereo, you know, at that nineteen sixty seven yeah. remixing
1: it. You've got Claremont Lake on this new version as well, and I recall reading that uh, that was one of Frank Zappa's favourites.
2: Yeah, that was a big surprise to me when we met Frank. <laughs> he said to me, "Oh, that's a great solo on on Claremont Lake." So yeah, it was surprising that he'd heard it and and delighted that he liked it, and uh, it's one of those little milestones in my career where somebody said something like georgie fame said something about me on my second syndicats record you know where he said oh he liked the guitarist or something so those things that they they really are important they're lovely ingredients of warmth and encouragement and i guess uh, much like when i showed up to work with mark Wirtz the first time ever on a on a session where there wasn't anybody there and i said well where is everybody and he said, "No." He said, "It's just you." And I went, "Wow, <laughs> studio too? EMI, just me? You know?" And I was tracking up guitars and doing things. And basically, those little things, uh, you know, are, are, are tremendously important to an artist where they have that little bit of encouragement, and uh, you know, you, you feed off that and, and you go with it. And um, of course, tomorrow was kind of much more of a breakthrough for me. Uh, in lots of respects, you know, my right bicycle is almost a hit record, you know, and all these kind of things almost happened for us. But I guess one could be thankful that maybe we didn't. We were we, we weren't destined to be successful then, uh, and maybe it would have been dangerous if we had been. But you know, we were trying, and uh,
1: anyway, <laughs> yeah. Because um, tomorrow on on that psychedelic scene around the time of nineteen sixty seven were. You were up there with uh, many of your peers, like uh, Pink Floyd and and Jimi Hendrix. And there's one moment where you were you were asked to stand in for Sid Barrett, but it didn't happen.
2: Yeah, that's another true story. <laughs> yeah. I was excited, you know, to uh, to think I was going to stand in, you know, and, and Jam really. I mean, it would have been a Jam most probably because there was going to be no rehearsal. Yeah, but I was rushed there, and and then the very last minute he showed up. So, um, you know, I, I just had to call my heels and. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, another classic moment earlier on was when Chris Farlow asked me to stand. I mean, I'm just blabbering about all these great moments now. You got me started. But, uh, you know, I got a call from from like Chris Farlow and he said, can you stand in for Albert tonight? And I went, oh, well, I'm not turning this down. And it was one of the best nights I can remember in my early career was being picked up in Aston Martin and, and rushed to... To Wolverhampton and actually rehearsed with with uh, the Thunderbirds and Chris and uh, so these moments uh, they never go away. <laughs> Thank goodness.
1: experiences that you had in the 60s of superb grounding for your work in the 70s but um the syndicates for example you were uh, some great singles like howling for my baby but you you worked with Joe Meek didn't you
2: yeah that was that was a Joe meek band really well I mean we were a band and we managed to get an audition with Joe and uh yeah that was a that was my first recording experience really and uh you know I kind of look up to Joe a bit you know because he was you know he he also was quite encouraging and uh but also it was about realizing another important side of the business is is actually getting on with people you know right. and, and if you don't find a producer too intimidating then you can get on with him you know and and then when he says oh let's overdub a solo you know you're in heaven you know oh you're gonna <laughs> you're gonna we're gonna overdub great great and um so, yeah, yeah, Joe was uh, was a hell of a character. But, um, you know, he was my grounding, you know, along with the, the few other producers that I worked with. And, and basically the engineers as well, you know, like on Tomorrow, uh, you know, Jeff Emmerich was yeah. was just like, yeah, he was a fixture at EMI. You know, he, he didn't book it and he, was, he came with it. And that was really fantastic. And the other guy, Pete, Peter Brown, Brown as well. So basically Peter Brown and Jeff also... You know, I always watched engineers and, you know, the desk was a scary looking thing. You know, uh, it looked like it was like a spaceship. Of course, you know, it wasn't in any comparison. But the desk, you know, Joe Meek and his tapes, you know, he had the floor full of tape and he cut bits of tape out of things and sped things up and, you know. So basically what went on besides playing the guitar fortunately really interested me you know it it, it was something that I thought you know you you would learn about and I I guess I did
0: the love Wow.
1: Tomorrow split and you joined Bodast. Although Keith West was the producer, you actually had a very young Ken Scott as engineer.
2: That's right. Again, we were we were lucky to just find these guys were the were the we were at Trident, I think, doing that, and Ken was there. Yeah, it, it, it's a wonderful thing to to rub shoulders with these people. Sometimes you don't even know that you're really rubbing <laughs> shoulders with them until their name becomes apparent later. You know, and then you look back and think, wow, that was great. So yeah, it was marvelous to have their skills like Eddie Offered with Yes, you know, for the first five years, was really this, this go-to guy, you know, the answer to the problems, you know, we were supposedly producing, yes, as a band, but uh we, we couldn't have done it without Eddie. And the same with Keith with when we did the Bodast album. But um, in, in between, of course, I did some work with Keith on a few tracks which did eventually come out with had some fascinating lineups where Ronnie Wood was playing bass, and 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 Ainsley Dunbar was playing drums. Right. So Keith was assembling, you know, in between uh, Tomorrow and 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 uh, Bodas, uh, he was sort of assembling uh, ideas for for a further uh, recordings. So that that's always interested me. Yeah, I, I, I guess Les Paul basically started all this. Really, he's one of the best producers ever that the world's ever had. And if you listen to his work today, it's completely astounding that it could possibly sound that good, and yet it was recorded on what we would call a pile of junk. <laughs> you know? I mean, stuff you know, old tapes and and, and that were the first one. Uh, one of his first hits wasn't even recorded on on the eight track machine that that he was notorious for forgetting. So I mean, there are some remarkable things, George Martin. You know, remarkable Phil 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 Spector, I suppose. But um, also, there's an awful lot of producers who don't get any credit, you know, and, uh, you know, like maybe Ron Richards with The Hollies, you know, uh, or so many of these key people who've done things for bands. So I guess I was always thinking, you don't get here on your own. You know, I didn't come out as like a solo singer or solo guitarist. Having always been in bands, I always appreciate what teamwork really is.
1: Never Street, which is a Bodast, there's a riff in that that you that came back later in, yes, with Worms. So, would you often reach back to licks or riffs or ideas that you had in many years before and and dig into them?
2: Well, not if they've been released, but the thing about the Bodast album, it wasn't released. So, I saw that music as canned, shelved, possibly, and it could have been for forever. In fact, if it hadn't been for the fact that I was very moved in 1978 to to hear the news that uh, Clive Skinner his real name was Clive Maldoon he was sometimes credited as was had passed away and that got me to get together with Gary Lang and produce the the the, the mixes that we did in, in in then release the album so yeah I mean when I got back to the album I thought oh god this is this is worm you know and there's other bits of close to the edge and all sorts of bits of songs in there, and, and I'm not—I don't generally do that, you know. That—that that is something most writers avoid, you know—is self-plagiarism, you could call it. But this was done under a different sort of uh, shelter, you know. Because really, literally, that's that music. Well, obviously, you can see how well it was developed by Yes. That I—I I, I didn't have any reservations, but yeah, I assumed that Bodas was dead and buried, and I'd never hear from Tetragramophone again. <laughs> 3, 4
1: Some of the recent news is that the Yes tour, which was uh, European and UK dates for Relayer, have been put back another year. What's your perspective on uh, the Relayer album? Because there's obviously the Gates of Delirium is such an ambitious and epic track. Where do you think that fits under the Yes albums?
2: Oh, well, right up there. I mean, we yeah. you know, 2018, 2019, we were playing the Gates of Delirium and, and absolutely loving it. And that was preparing us for doing Relaya. So that album's right up right up there. Yeah. I mean if you look at the sequence, you know, if I I was in a cab the other day and the guy said to me, um, a black London cab, you know. And he said to me, "Oh, the Yes album—that's the great Yes album." So if you look at the way that the Yes album, you know, was followed and superseded and improved on, and you get to close to the edge, and, and Topographic Oceans, <laughs> you gets a real well, I mean, that's a monumental chunk of work, uh, and it went on, you know, going for the one, and, and particularly Drama, I think, is fantastic. So we we had lots of hiatus in the seventies, no doubt about it. We we were crazy. Fanatical musos, you know, and rambling off on on anything we wanted to, and we were incredibly free, and, and that's the key to music, you know. It must allow you to be free of of restraint and uh, oppression <laughs> and things like this. But yeah, Relayer is 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 a sensational record. Yeah, I mean, it's complex and kind of over, uh, maybe even overly adventurous. <laughs>
1: Favorite solo tracks of yours is uh, Turbulence from just over thirty years yeah. now. The great Bill Bruford on drums, um, Certainly. How would you approach your solo materials in areas like that, as opposed to yes and similar collaborative projects?
2: Well, yeah, it's mean, interesting because really. I quite like reviewing music. You know, I once read a quote by George Harrison where he said he never he never listened to, your, to the Beatles records. You know, once he made the record, he never listened to it. And I, I don't really think that could have been true, but it certainly isn't true of me. I, I like to, when I made a record, I don't want to hear it for quite a while, you know, maybe two mm. to three months. That's a really good break. After you just made it, I mean, you spent maybe months making it, or maybe years uh, with time over the years. But anyway, so making the records is great and then not hearing them for a while then then try and appreciate what it is you've just done you know so then years can pass and quite recently i did a pretty big review where each night i picked one of my solos and listened to it and just sort of sat there and thought well yeah <laughs> yeah i kind of like yeah i like this bit and the turbulence was forever interesting because there are times in the the album Turbulence, and the track, you know, epitomises Turbulence, really, the album. But, I mean, at that time, sounds were very um, dateable, you know. In other words, you can look back and you can see how you were thinking because of the time, you know, that you were in. So, you know, Beginnings of Steve Howe. you know, I was just doing a lot of crazy jamboree, what I call my jamboree albums, where there's everything, I throw everything in, a bit of country, a bit of rock, you know, a few songs, you know. It's a kind of bizarre, (laughs) almost... (laughs) crazy idea i had the way that that kind of hung together in my mind so when i listened back i i can see where i was coming from but i didn't carry on making every album like that you know in that so i I got into things like spectrum and and things that were much more defined as a direction so when when i hear turbulence I, i you know i leapt out you know from moving across my albums this was a quite a techno-sounding kind of album. I mean, the, yeah. the first couple were much more homely-sounding, I think. You know, in some respects, besides the orchestral work. But turbulence it got it's not an anger, but it, got, it was angular. It was kind of pushy, and, and of course, I had a, a nice bit of help from Billy Curry on the keyboards on that, yeah. one besides Bill Bruford. And I, but I think on that particular track, it's um, it's an, an organist who plays it actually to St Paul's Cathedral at the time. To- wow. And he played some organ on there for me. I've sl- His name slipped my memory. I'm sorry. Um, no worries. It's somewhere. It is credited, and he was a lovely chap. He just did that one session for me on a, on a special organ. So that track was full. When I put it, when I put the CD on, and he went, you know, and the plane started flying around. Yeah, I mean, I I always had a bit of fascination for you know sound effects, and uh, I guess um, that that one was key. You know, the way those. I had this record called Nuclear a nuclear-powered submarine or something. Yeah, I, I had sound effect records, which were a bit out of the uh, out of the usual, and I've still got them. Um, I collected them. If I see something weird, I go, what's that? <laughs> uh, the sound of a nuclear submarine? You've got to buy that. So that was the kind of crazy stuff I bought, as well as music from Tibet and, you know, all sorts of weird records. You know, just anything that wasn't ordinary. It wasn't in the charts. I would most probably buy it. But uh has had this, and as an album as well, later on there's a there's a hurdy gurdy playing somewhere that that we 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 utilize. So there's a lot of I'm so ambitious and also very you know when you look at the album the inner battle and particularly goodness me, there's one track on about the third track, and it, it, I've got multiple kind of riffs going. And when Bill came in to play on it, I just kind of said to him, "Well, here it is, but I don't know what you do <laughs> with this." And he just, you know, he listened to it, and he went, well, it, it, I think it's changing from, like, 7, 8 to, like, 11, 8 or something. <laughs> I said, I don't know. I play this stuff, and sometimes I don't even know really what time signature is in, because I just keep playing the parts that I feel. So he went out there, and he, he kept moving the downbeat, you know, uh, one beat along every bar. And like, this just did something wacky to the track, the inner battle and... Um, I don't know what the other one was, but they were particularly careful. But, you know, like while we're on burning, you know, he just laid back and, and, you know, very, very straight playing really from Bill. But that doesn't diminish from the fact that his drumming had like almost an elevation beats in it. You know, there there was a way that Bill, and he could still do it, I'm sure. But all of his drumming showed that that incredible lightness of touch where he didn't need to do a whole lot of, uh, you know, Buddy Rich breaks all he would do would just be Bill Bruford you know and that was great so that team on on um, Turbulence was, was very very exciting to work with and I guess that's, that's when I started to shine and craft my records more than I had the first two that was my third record and uh, yeah it was a lot of fun
1: And of course, uh, it's good to talk about the uh, forthcoming Yes album, Mirror to the Sky, and we've all heard the new single cut from the stars that's been uh, really, really well received. It must be difficult in a way, given that you know, Alan's sadly passed on. So um, how is it moving on from
2: Alan to craft this uh, this new album? Well, it's almost like, well, yes, is a kind of bulldozer. You know, when you look at the 70s and how often we change members, and then mm. we look at the 80s and how different that was then and then started to develop. So the way that we've managed to cope over the years, or different members have managed, not only me, of course, but not only me being there, but when other people, when I wasn't there, rather, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So when I wasn't there, they, they still found ways of, of getting over the next hurdle. And they had a few hurdles in the 80s, you know, that a friend of mine tells me about quite a lot, mm. you know, the way they made those two albums and then the the last uh, album. Um, so, um, so yeah, well, yes, get over problems. We we continue because there is a sort of inner flame of yes that, that nobody holds, you know, no one person holds it. It has to be a collective, like kind of, uh, you know, Olympic flame of yes. It, it, there has to be something going on even if I'm not there, even if so-and-so's not there, you know. So basically, it's a bit like a, a gauntlet gets handed on to the, the next collective that, that is actually managing to get their heads around, not only playing retrospective Yes Music impeccably well, but also, as we've shown, starting to, to sort of demonstrate now with The Quest and now Mirror to the Sky, that in fact, this this band may be able to to create relevant new music, you know, and uh, I I wasn't fully convinced of that, you know, uh, Mm. before in the latter tens, you know, 2010s. I wasn't sure. I was always holding Yes back, saying, well, look, until we've got the songs, you know, it's no good really making a record, (laughs) because what you need are songs. So getting a good balance of songs and doing that, but also, as I say, playing Yes with the highest respect for the music and all the members that have been there, in the performance you know that that's really I, I mean we missed doing the performance and we worked on our yeah. albums and we hope to get our you know more experience back on on and it is a great shame that we've through various you know co- conjectury and uncomplimentary and unsatisfying developments you know through what we booked uh, back in 2004 2020 just rotating this again was, was really hard and delaying it again was really hard, especially after we were out last year. So yeah. it's a curious uh, sort of collapse of part of that side of, um, our ability to take on a tour that was planned for 2020 in, in 2023. So really we want to be able to do our best by knowing that what we're doing is right. And, and, uh, by the time we got here this year, there were just so many things that were problematic, and um we will adjust that next year and come up with a, a, a new idea really for that. Because uh, I feel taking Relayer along is is a bit like taking COVID along. You know? <laughs> it's become like, oh, not you know, surely can mm. we? Are we? Must we? But uh, well, no, we want to. And the, the desire that we had in early 2020, when we were all beaving away learning the detail of Relayer, not just yeah. the the structure, but actually you know the actual you know all the notes the, all I was doing that, and we were all set to go off and play Relayer. And I think we could have done it then. We could have done it 21. <laughs> we could have done it 22. <laughs> but yeah, you know, that's what I mean. We we kind of need to uh, be able to book tours and adjust set lists accordingly to what we know is best for us and, and our audience at any given time
1: To close, um, it's clear that um, with the title track of Mirror to the Sky and there's uh, luminosity as well from the album that span over 10 minutes that the creative element of Yes and the drive continues to flourish.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, it, things don't happen without hard work. This isn't a carousel floating, floating down, you know, some snow in Switzerland. This, this, this Yes has always been a band that was prepared to work on, on things very hard. So, yeah, it is nice. And it also good that gradually from The Quest and now Mirror, we're starting to kind of get a scale in our music that we like. You know, we're not ever trying. Well, if anybody says, oh, why don't you do a 20-minute piece? I just say, look, can you just not say that? When we get a 20-minute piece, we'll have one, you know. But we're not trying to get that. What we're trying to do is to work on our songs individually as really beautiful things that we can create together and get everybody involved. Everybody has great parts. You know, every, you know, we, 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 we get all the balancing, right. And we got yeah. all the textual qualities, right. And, but we don't want to lose that flame, you know, and we want to keep the, the uh, emotion and, and the excitement that we've got in that. So that's all part of the yes thing, but also behind the scenes, of course, it's also an organization. It has to, You know, it has to work uh, structurally, contractually, you know, within the rules that that are applied to us and everybody else in the world. But also, you know, we are carrying on a flag of, of a band so in lots of ways, we are still working with everybody who's ever been in Yes, you know, in one respect or another, in different degrees, with different you know arms out in different from different eras. So yeah, I'm I'm extremely proud to have come from the the Yes album era and seen what I did in in the 70s, and then got back in you know 95. And it was much harder work in 95, you know, with Keyst ascension and, and Open Your Eyes and Goodness me! There was just so many. Um, there were so many challenges that we, 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 we that were greater in a way than the one when we had that new momentum. You know, so when Fragile came out, and we were being being welcomed into a more successful appreciation. But so continuing is is exciting, and it takes pace. You know, it takes belief and and strength. So yeah, the the, the bigger music we play, kind of allows us to to be more um, not creative is a word that i try not to use too often mm. but to, you know to be more colorful i suppose and when you think about a great song like let's just say penny lane you know i mean that song is not like another beatles song i can think of nor is i'm a walrus you know noise so in the way the beatles are totally be totally the forerunners of this you know because before that bands did songs that all kind of sounded the same was just different songs saying there's an organ and a guitar. and The Beatles stopped doing that. They don't they have a harmonica on this one, you know, a, a Leslie guitar on this one, you know. And and basically, I think that that's the spirit of progressive music was really started, you know, uh, firmly by by the Beatles uh, in, the, in the sense of psychedelia. And all was said that psychedelia developed and became prog, you know, and it became yeah. uh, uh, that. So that's it. That's my... Um, feelings about yeah like you say um yes doing new music and also that we are in a way an incarnation of of what yes needs to be and can be and that's the thing need is one word but yes this is the yes that can exist and we're very pleased Fantastic. It's a lovely way to
1: uh, tie things up, given that we started in the 60s with Tomorrow, uh, peers of the Beatles. And uh, it's, it's a pleasure as always, Steve. I wish you all the best with the release of Tomorrow and
2: uh, the new Yes album. All right, Jason. It's been nice to talk to you. and Bye-bye. Nice questions. Very thoughtful. Bye.